0: Good morning everyone. I hope everyone had a good week. I'm right a little behind schedule this morning, so we'll just get right into it. Now, I'll review Chapter 2 a little bit. There was actually a lot of confusing parts in Chapter 2, I found anyways. So we'll see if we can sort of get that straightened out a little bit here. I'm going to say for sure that Watson is completely enthralled by Sherlock. And he has really... Trying to keep his personal feelings out of the uh out of the fray, we'll say, for <clears throat> lack of a better word, excuse me. Because he's not <clears throat> he's not quite too uh pleased at how Sherlock treats all the suggestions and how Sherlock says, you know, the two uh the people you're comparing me to, like DuPin and uh Lecoq and, and Sherlock's mind are complete idiots. And uh, that took to, to heart for Watson because he has a little more respect for those people than he does. I'm going to be drinking coffee during this, so please don't mind that. So they're trying to, you know, I still think that the stage of they're trying to banter each other's and in their positions to uh, be cohesive, to work together as a team. And I think Watson is definitely understanding that Sherlock's just going to do his own thing no matter what he tells him rarely haven't seen yet has he took any advice from, uh, from Dr. Watson. So basically Watsons is in the kind of the reporting stage for us the audience kind of in, uh, in his own self. He still can't figure out why Sherlock or how Sherlock can do what he does. So we're going to go back just a little bit here to lead into chapter three, which is our first first mystery. <clears throat> where the team works together to try and solve the first crime of the, of the book. Actually, the first crime of the entire series of the Sherlock Holmes, uh, what, what I want to say? The Sherlock Holmes Mysteries. So we're going to go back a little bit here just to, uh, remember back in Chapter 2 when <clears throat> there was a guy going around in the street, knocking on doors, looking at the number, and we trying to find a house number. And then Watson observed him coming to their to their their house number, and he heard the knock on the door. And then uh, we'll go from there, because this is where Sherlock already told him who this guy was. And Watson, in Watson's mind, he's figured just going on by the, the uniform thing and everything else, but there's a lot more detail to that, which we'll get to in, in uh, Chapter 3. So I'm going to start here. You mean the retired sergeant of Marines, said Sherlock Holmes. Now this is where Watson is saying, Who is that guy down there? And uh, this is what Sherlock tells him. And 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 then uh, Watson's thinking to himself, brag and bounce, brag and boast, I thought to myself, he knows that I cannot verify his guess. The thought that I already passed through my mind when the man whom we were watching caught sight of the number on our door and ran rapidly across the roadway. We heard a loud knock. A deep voice below. The heavy steps ascending the stair. "For Mr. Sherlock Holmes," he says, stepping into the room and hanging my friend, handing my friend a letter. Here was an opportunity I've taken to conceit out of him. He thought of this when he made the, that random shot. He little thought of this when he made that random shot. May I ask you, my lad? I said blandly, "What's your trade, may be, commissioner, sir?" He said gruffly, "Uniforms away for repairs." And you were? I asked with a slight malicious glance at my companion. A sergeant, sir. Royal Marine Light Infantry, sir. No answer. Right, sir. He clipped his heel together, raised his hand, and salute, and he was gone. So once again, Sherlock managed to uh, put Watson in his place, we'll say, for lack of a better way to say it, and. uh, Watson still probably just shaking his head, thinking, "What's it with this guy, anyways? Why can't I just seem to figure him out? How does he do this? How does he have this art of deduction? By at a glance, you can look and tell so much information about one person just at a, at a fleeting glance, like he always does." So Watson is still in a little mystified stage here yet. So okay, so chapter three, the first mystery, it's called the Lauriston Gardens Mystery. Chapter 3. Don't mind me, I'm my coffee as we go along. I just kind of woke up and I'm very tired right now. Okay, Chapter 3, The Laurison Gardens Mystery. <clears throat> Let's dive in. I confess that I was considerably startled by this fresh proof, proof of the practical nature of my companion's theories. Once again, he is completely blown away by the ability of Sherlock Holmes. My respect for his powers of analysis increased wondrously. There still remains some lurking suspicion in my mind. However, the whole thing was prearranged, that the whole thing was a prearranged episode intended to dazzle me, though what earthly object he could have been me in the past was my comprehension. So let's just stop for a minute. So he's thinking, <clears throat> you know what? I don't think this guy is a phony baloney. As he says here, there still remains some lurking suspicion in my mind. However, that whole thing was a pre-arranged episode. It tended to dazzle me. Though what earthly object would he could have taken me in, in with my past comprehension? So he's, he's really struggling. He's probably, now he's thinking, it was a setup. Sherlock arranged this whole thing to happen. So he's still not quite quite there yet. So it's taking, taking us some time to really understand the abilities of Sherlock Holmes. When I looked at him, he had finished reading the note, and his eyes assumed a vacant lackluster expression which showed mental abstraction. Not lacklust, lackluster. How in the world did you deduce that, I asked. Deduce what, he said firmly. Why, that he was a retired sergeant of Marines. S- I have no time for such truffles. trifles, he replied quickly. Then with a smile, excuse my rudeness, you broke my thread of thoughts, but perhaps it is as well. So you were actually not able to see that the man was a sergeant of marines. No, indeed not, said Watson. It was easier to know it than to explain why I know it. If you were asked to prove that two and two made four, you might find difficulty, and yet you are quite sure of the fact that two and two make four. Even across the street, I could see a great blue anger tattooed in the back of the fellow's hand. That smacked of the sea. He had a military carriage, however, regulation and regulation side whiskers. They, there we have the marine. He was a man with some amount of self-importance a certain of air of command. You must have observed it in the way he held his head and swung his cane, a steady, respectable middle-aged man. On the face of him, all facts were led me to believe that he would be a sergeant. Wonderfully ejaculated. Commonplace," said Holmes. Though I thought, from his expression, that he was pleased at my evident surprise and admiration. So now, now it's looking like uh, Watson is slowly starting to admire the abilities of Sherlock instead of, I wouldn't say feeling jealous, but feeling like this guy's full of crap. How can he do all this? So he's starting to get on board with the, with the Sherlock Holmes, and this is going to be crucial as they go together as a team. Cause once you get rid of that self-doubt, then you can trust. You know, it's like in the forms of leadership when you tell somebody, go and do that, instead of here the guy is saying, Hey, why this, why that, you just trust what he's saying to you and you just go ahead and do it, because you have complete trust in his decision making. Which is happening here with Watson and Holmes. I said, just now, there's no criminals. It appears that I'm wrong. Look at this. He threw me over the note from the commissioner had brought. Why I cried as I cast over my eye over it. This is terrible. It does seem to be a little out of the common," he remarked calmly. "Would you mind reading it to me aloud?" This is the letter which I read to him. Okay, this is the note coming in from from the commissioner, and uh, I think um, let's see why. So he's asking Holmes or uh, Watson to read the letter. All right, here we go. My dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, there has been a bad business during the night at 3 Lorison Gardens off Brixton Road. Our man on the beat saw a light there about 2 in the morning, and as the house was an empty one, suspected that something was amiss. He found the door open, and in the, in, in the front room, which is bare of furniture, discovered the body of a gentleman, well dressed, having cards in his pocket bearing the name of Enoch J. Drebber. Ready for this, everybody? From where? Cleveland, Ohio, USA. <laughs> Let's stop there for a second. Well, what are the odds of this? Whoever would have thought that this book would have Cleveland, Ohio, USA in the very first book of uh, Sherlock Holmes? I find it completely fascinating. It just blows my mind. <laughs> it's around the corner for pretty much most of us listening to this podcast, I would think. But I don't know for sure if I'm just saying there had been no robbery, robbery nor there is any evidence as how the man met his death. There are marks of blood in the room, but there is no wound upon this person. We are at a loss as how he came into the empty house. Indeed, the whole affair is a complete puzzler. If you can come around to the house anytime before 12, you will find me there. I have left everything in status quo until I hear from you so he has not contaminated the crime scene, folks. He has so that's a good move, right there. If you are unable to come, I shall give you further details, and it would esteem and would esteem it a great kindness if you would favor me with your opinion. Yours faithfully, Tobias Gregson. Tobias Gregson is the smartest of the Scotland Yarders. My friend remarked, "He and Lestrade are the pick of the bad lot. They are quick and energetic, but conventional and shockingly so." They have their knives into each other, too. They are jealous as a pair of professional beauties. There will be some fun over this case, and they are both put on the scent. Sounds like the the relationship between Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. Watson here. More on the Watson side with the knives into each other, though, I would say. I was amazed at the calm way in which he rippled on. Surely there is not a moment to be lost, I cried. Shall I go and order you a cab? I'm not sure about whether I'm going to go. I am most incredibly lazy devil and that ever stood in shoe leather. <laughs> that is, when the fits is on me, for I can be spry enough at times. So he's not in the mood. He just doesn't really give a care right now. Why is it just such a chance it have been long for? So he's just saying, well, we've been waiting for something just like for so long. Let's just jump on it. My dear fellow, what does it matter to me? Supposing I unravel the whole matter, you may be sure that Gregson of the Stratton and Company will pocket all the credit. That comes of being an unofficial personage. But he begs you for your help. Yes, he knows that I am his superior and acknowledges it to me. He would cut his tongue out before he would, go, would own it to any third person. Let me repeat that. He begs you for help. Yes, he knows that I am his superior and acknowledges it to me. But he would cut his tongue out before he would go own it to any third person. In other words, he's not going to go to anybody else but Sherlock. He's not going to, he would have to, he would have his his tongue cut out before he speaks to anybody about the case. Sherlock is the first one that came to his mind. However, we may as well go have a look. I'll still work it out in my own hook. I may have a laugh at them, if nothing else. Come on, let's go check it out. So, basically, Watson convinced Sherlock to go and see what's going on with this. This is getting very exciting. And off the team goes. He hustled on his overcoat and bustled the boat in the way that shoved that energetic fit that has superseded the apathetic one. So, now he just basically switched gears. So, I guess Sherlock got him going, or uh, Watson got him going. Get your hat, he said. You wish to Come. Yes, yes, if you have nothing better to do. A minute later, we're both in the Hansom, which is basically a stagecoach, driving fiercely for Brixton Road. So they're off and excited, and Watson is ready for all kinds of good action here. A minute later, we're both in a, in a Hansom stagecoach, driving fiercely for Brixton Road. It was a foggy, cloudy morning, and a dull colored veil hung over the housetops, looking like the reflection of the mud colored streets beneath. My like companion was in the best of spirits and prattled away about Cremona and fiddles and the difference between the Stradivarius and the Namati. As for myself, I was silent, for the dull weather and the melancholy business upon which we were engaged depressed my spirits. Oh, come on, Watson, why is he so down in the dumps all of a sudden here? They're going on their first big case. He should be elated. You don't seem to give him much You don't seem to give much thought to the matter in hand, I said at last, interrupting Holmes' musical disquisition. No data yet, he answered. It's a capital mistake to theorize before you have all the evidence. It biases your judgment. You will have your data soon, I remarked, pointing with my finger. This is the Brixton Road, and there is the house, and if I'm not very much mistaken. So it is. Stop, driver, stop. We are still a hundred yards or so from it, but he insisted upon alighting it. We are finished our journey upon foot. Okay, so he stopped several hundred yards, a hundred yards from the house. And Watson has no idea why. But us, we know why. Because he wants to start looking for clues at a distance and see how the person got in and out of the entrance and everything else. So this is a good move on Sherlock's part. And Watson's still not quite in the the, uh, solving the mystery games yet. Number three, Lorison Gardens, wore an ill amend with monetary look. Kind of like an old-fashioned style garden with the, you know, with the vines all over the house and things like that, I guess. It was one of the four which stood back some a little way from the street, two being occupied and two empty. The latter looked out the three tiers of the vacant, melancholy windows, which were blank and dreary. Save that here, there to let, card had developed, cataract upon bearded panes. So that was a fervent sign that the window was faded and that's what they mean by with like a cataract upon bleared panes. It's probably been sitting there for so long I'm assuming this is where the dead body is going to be found. A small garden sprinkled over with a scattered eruption of sickly plants separated each of those houses from the street and was traversed by a narrow pathway, yellowish in color and consisting apparently of a mixture of clay and gravel. So they came upon like three or four buildings, and the one there's two rented from the sounds of it, and the one that uh, they're going into has a for rent sign on the window, and this is probably where the dead body is. The whole place was very sloppy from the rain which had fallen through the night. The garden was bounded with three foot, bounded by a three foot brick wall with a fringe of wood rails upon the top, and against this wall was leaning a stalwart police constable, surrounded by a small knot of loafers who craned their necks and strained their eyes in the vein of hoping catching some glimpse of the proceedings within. And we all know what that means, people. That's what you call it, rubbernecking, right there. So there's even a little crowd going around, rubbernecking, trying to see what's going on. They probably got no idea who got killed. And there's a policeman right in front of the door waiting for for Holmes and Watson to show up. I had imagined that Sherlock Holmes would at once have hurried into the house and plunged into a study of the mystery. Nothing appeared to be further from the truth. With an air of nonchalance, which under the circumstances seemed to me border upon affection, he lounged up, up and down the pavement and gazed vacantly at the ground, the sky, the opposite houses, and a line of railings. Having finished his scrutiny, he proceeded slowly down the path, or rather down the fringe of grass which flanked the path. Kept keeping his eyes riveted upon the ground. Twice he stopped, and once I saw him smile and heard him utter an exclamation of satisfaction. There are marks of footsteps upon the wet, clayey soil, but since the police had been coming and going over it, I was unable to see how my companion could hope to learn anything from it. Still, I had such an extraordinary evidence of the quickness of his perceptive faculties that I had no doubt that he could see a little great deal of which was hidden from me. So here, once again, Watson is starting to get on board, realizing that, yeah, Sherlock Holmes does have some serious talent going on here. And just watching him observe, because he hasn't even ran to the house yet, he's still taking in the whole scene from the outside, trying to gather some facts. And Watson is completely enthralled by all this, because he's starting to realize that he's in the presence of greatness. And we all know Sherlock Holmes is one of the greatest detectives on Earth. So, here we go. At the door of the house where we met by, we were met by a tall, white faced, flaxen haired man with a notebook in his hand. We rushed forward and wrung my companion's hand with effusion. Very excited to see him. It is indeed kind of you to come, he said. I have have, have everything left untouched except that, my friend answered, pointing to the pathway. If I <laughs> if a herd of buffaloes that pass along there could not be a greater mess. <laughs> so I guess the the, the, the sidewalk on the way in was completely trapped with strange footprints and everything else, God knows. And uh, I like the term, the herd of buffaloes pass along there cannot be a greater mess. <laughs> no doubt, however, you have withdrawn your own conclusions, Gregson, before you permitted this. So he's saying that the, Gregson already realized what was going on, so he allowed everybody just to trash out the crime scene in front of the house. I've had so much to do inside the house, the detective said it basically. My colleague, Mr. Lestrade, is here. I have relied upon him to look after this. Holmes glanced at me and raised his eyebrows in a sardonically wave. In other words, yeah, sure, like, mm-hmm. With two such men as yourself and Lestrade upon the ground, there were not much for a third party to find out, said he. Gresson rubbed his hands in a self-satisfied way. I think we have done all we can be done. He answered. It's a queer case, though. I knew your taste for such things. You did not come here in a cab, asked Sherlock Holmes. No, sir. No, nor Lestrade. No, sir. Then let us look up, let us look at the, let us go and look at the room. Now, why would he ask about the cab? Let me just go back here a little bit. Gretchen rubbed his eyes in a self-satisfied way. So Gretchen's thinking he did himself a good job waiting on for Sherlock to show up. I think we have done all that we can be done. He answered. It's a queer case, though, I and I knew your taste for such things. Did you not come here in a cab, asked Sherlock Holmes. No, sir. Nor Lestrade No, sir. Then let us go look at the room. Okay, let's stop there for a second. So, why would Sherlock ask him specifically if he came in a cab? Because he knows that someone came in a cab from his observations outside. This is where he's getting at. That's why he asked. Good point right there. Very interesting. With this inconsequent remark, he strode on into the house, followed by Gregson, whose speech was expected astonishment. A short passage, bare planked, and dusty led to the kitchen and offices. Two doors opened out of it to the left and to the right. One of these had obviously been closed for many weeks. The other belonged to the dining room, which is the apartment in which the mysterious affair had occurred. Holmes walked in and I followed him with a subdued feeling at my heart which was the presence of as death inspires. So being a doctor he knows everything about uh, being around dead people and how that feels. I imagine it's a certain feeling that uh, the majority of the population don't even have any clue if you see it every day. It was a large square room looking all the larger for the absence of all the furniture. A vulgar flaring paper adorned the walls but it was Blossom places with some mildew and here and there great strips have become detached and hung down We all know what that looks like in any of those old movies you watch where they go into an abandoned house Or you know if you see that a lot of those uh, ghost hunting shows where the walls are all just falling apart The wallpaper is falling off the wall. That's what they're walking into Opposite door was a showy fireplace surmounted by a mantelpiece of imitation of white marble on the corner of this was was Stuck the stump of a red wax candle. A stump. Let's take note of that. So the candle has been burnt down. The solitary window was so dirty that the light was hazy and uncertain, giving a dull gray tinge to everything, which was intensified by a liquid layer of dust which coated the whole apartment. So obviously the apartment has been, hasn't been occupied or been uh, used for quite some time. So con- the dust is leaving a lot of evidence of uh, people being in there recently. All the details I observed afterward. All these details I observed afterward. At present, my attention was centered upon a single, grim, motionless figure which lay stretched upon the boards with a vacant, sightless eye staring at the discolored ceiling. It was that of a man about 43 or 44 years of age, middle-sized, broad shoulder, with crisp, curling black hair and a short, stubbly beard. He was in—he was dressed in a heavy broadcloth frock coat and a waistcoat, with light-colored trousers and immaculate, immaculate collar and cuffs. So this guy might have some money. A top hat, well brushed and trimmed, was placed upon the floor beside him. His hands were clenched, with his arms thrown abroad, while his lower limbs were interlocked, as though he was in a death struggle with the grievous one. On his rigid face there stood an expression of horror, and it seemed to me of hatred, such as I have never seen upon human features. This malignant and terrible contortion, combined with low forehead, blunt nose, combined with low forehead and blunt nose, and a projecting jaw, gave the dead man a singularities similis of ape-like appearance, which was increased by his rather unnatural posture so we have a really good good description of the guy that, was, that got killed now over here next to this page is a drawing <clears throat> and i'd like to explain the drawings to you to give you to keep us along here and it, it'll come up in the previous let me get to that point first and i'll come back to the uh to the picture what it says on the wall so the guy is basically uh, has a projecting jaw and he's you know mid-age and, and he was in a fight of his life. And he had an unnatural posture laying on the floor. I have seen death in many forms, but never has it appeared to me in a more fearsome aspect than in a dark, grimy apartment, which looked upon one of the main arteries of the suburban of London. Lestrade, lean and ferret-like as ever, was standing down by the doorway, with greeting my companion and myself. Last time they called him Ratface, now they're calling him a ferret. This case will make a stir, sir, he remarked. It beats anything I've ever seen, and I am no chicken. There is no clue, said Gregson. None at all, chimed in Lestrade. Sherlock Holmes approached the body, kneeling down, and examined it intently. You are sure that there is no wound, he asked, pointing to the numerous gouts of splashes of blood which lay lay all around. Positive, cried both detectives. (coughs) Excuse me. Then of course this blood belongs to a second individual, presumably the murderer, if murder has been committed. It reminds me of the circumstances attending attendant on the death of Van Jansen in Utrecht in the year of thirty four. Do you remember that case, Gregson? No, sir. Read it up. You really should. There is nothing new under the sun; it all has been done before. So he's basically saying same old, same old, in the crime scene here, basically. As he spoke, his nimble fingers were flying here and there and everywhere, feeling, pressing, unbuttoning and examining, while his eyes wore the same faraway expression which I've already remarked upon. So basically, deep in thought, deep in thought. So swiftly was the examination made one that could hardly have guessed the minuteness in which it was was conducted. Finally, he sniffed the dead man's lips and then glanced at the soles of the patient's leather boots, of the patent leather boots. Has he, he has not been moved at all, he asked. No, more than was necessary for the purpose of examination, so they didn't touch him. And then Sherlock says, you can take him to the mortuary now, he said. There's nothing more to be learned. So he has his thorough examination done, and off, they can take the body away, and Sherlock has all his information he needs from the dead man. Gregson had a stretcher and a 4 men at hand, and at his call they entered the room, and the stranger was lifted and carried out. As they raced him, a ring tingled down and rolled across the floor. Lestrade grabbed it up and stared at it with mystified eyes. There's been a woman here, he cried. It's a woman's wedding ring. Ooh. Sounds to me like some jealousy going on here, or something. Maybe the wife is involved in this man's death. Very interesting. He held it out as he spoke upon the palm of his hand. We all gathered round at him and gazed at it. There could be no doubt that the circle of plain gold had once adorned the finger of a bride. This complicates matters, says Gretchen. Heaven knows they were complicated enough before. You sure it doesn't simplify them, observed Holmes? There is nothing to be learned by staring at it. (laughs) What did you find in the pockets? (laughs) You can stare at it all day long, it's not going to change nothing. We have it all here, said Grexon, pointing to a litter of objects upon the bottom of the steps of the stairs. A gold watch, number by Bar- Bar- Road of London. Gold Albert chain with a heavy and heavy and solid heavy and solid gold let me let me start off. Sorry, folks. We have it all here, said Grexon, pointing to a litter of objects upon one of the bottom steps of the stairs. A gold watch by Barrow of London. Gold Albert chain, very heavy and solid, a gold ring with a Masonic device, gold pin, bull heads, bulldog's head with rubies as eyes, Russian Russian leather card case with cards, e- Enoch J. Drebber of Cleveland, corresponding with EJD, upon the linen. No purse, but loose money to the extent of 7 pounds, 13. Pocket edition of Bracco's Decameron, with the name of Joseph Joseph Stangerson, upon a flyleaf. Two letters, one address E.J. Drebber and one to Joseph Stangerson. At what address? American Exchange Strand to be left till called for. Let's just go over this a little bit here. Let's stop there. <coughs> Excuse me. So the objects, obviously this guy has uh, influence and money and worth all the gold uh, jewelry and you know, the, the bulldog head pin and rubies and Russian leather case. And so he's got influence somewhere. And did you notice one other word here, which I said? I'll read it one more time. With Masonic device. So he's a Mason. This this gentleman is a Mason. See, we're going to try and figure out what's going on here as we read along. So now we know a couple things. He's a Mason. We know that the, 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 guy, the dead man is somewhat affluent, has a good standing somewhere in Cleveland, and he's probably visiting London on business, I would imagine, through the American Exchange. So we're learning as we go. Let's continue on. At what address American Exchange Strand to be left till called for? They are both from the Gwinnin Steamship Company and refer to the sailing of the boats from Liverpool It is clear that the unfortunate man was about to return to New York. Okay, so they own ships. It's a shipping company. That's an interesting tidbit right there. Have you made an inquiries to this man, Stangerson? I did it once, sir, said Gregson. I have had an advertisement sent to all newspapers. And one of my men has gone to the American Exchange, but he has not yet returned. Have you sent to Cleveland? We telegraphed Cleveland this morning. How did you word with inquiries? We simply detailed the circumstances and said that we should be glad of any information which could help us. So they contacted Cleveland and asked him for any kind of information about these two fellas. You did not ask for particulars or any point which appeared to be crucial. I asked about Stangerson, nothing else. Is there no circumstance in which the whole case appears to hinge? Will you not telegraph again? So Holmes is asking to re-recontact uh, Cleveland and see if we can get here. I have I have said all I have to say," said Gregson in an offended voice. So he's kind of pissing him off a little bit here, because Sherlock's doubting his abilities, and he's Sherlock is basically saying, "You asked all the wrong questions. How are we supposed to learn anything you don't ask proper questions?" I have said all I have to say," said Gregson in an offended voice. Sherlock Holmes chuckled to himself and appeared to be about to make some remark when Lestrade. Who had been in the front room while we were holding this conversation in the hall reappeared upon the scene, rubbing his hands in a pompous, self satisfied manner. You know, like he like he found a like he found a prize or something. Mister Gregson, he said, "I have just made a discovery of the highest importance and one which have been overlooked had I not made a careful examination of the walls." So a little bragging going on here, I think. The little man's eyes, the rat-faced guy that he is. Sparkled as he spoke, and he was evidently in the state of suppressed exaltation of having scored a point against his colleague. So, so they're going back and forth, trying to outdo each other in their uh, observation skills. And Sherlock's probably just shaking his head and thinking, Come on, let's get on with it, you guys. You're driving me crazy. Come here, he said, busting back into the room, the atmosphere of which felt cleaner since the removal of his ghastly inmate. Now stand there. He struck a match with his boot held it up against the wall. Look at that, he said triumphantly. I have remarked that the paper had fallen away in parts, but in this particular corner of the room, a large piece had peeled off, leaving a yellow square of coarse plastering. Across this bare space was scrawled in blood-red letters a single word, RACHE, R-A-C-H-E, which means revenge. Now, I'm going to go back to that picture I was telling you about. And in the sketch they draw here, and it, and it says here on below the sketch, he struck a match on his boot and held it up against the wall. So Lestrade, and yeah, in the picture he does look like a little rat face too. <laughs> so the three of them are there: Holmes, Watson, and Lestrade. And on the wall is a in, in the capital letters R A C H E, which in turns means revenge. So that's a very significant clue. So someone is seeking revenge on these two people or this person and now we're going to so now our clues are our clues are mounting here. We know he's in the shipping business. We know he's a mason. We know he's very wealthy and we know someone is seeking revenge. And we also know that a woman's wedding ring was found in his pocket. So there might be some shenanigans going on here people. There might be some shenanigans going on. And as we all know in society today, you know, that can cause a lot of problems. Let's continue on. This is getting very exciting. What do you think of that? Cried the detective. With the air of showman exhibiting the show. This is a stray, by the way. This was overlooked because it was in the darkest corner of the room and no one thought of looking there. The murderer has written it with his, his or her own blood. See this smear where it trickled down the wall? That disposes the idea of suicide. Anyhow, why was that corner chosen to write it on? I will tell you, see that candle on the mantelpiece? It was light at the time, and as it had been lighted on this corner, it would be the great brightest instead of the darkest portion of the wall. Aha, there we go. Remember when, when I I'd read it was a stub of a red candle? Stump, they call it a stump of a red candle. So the, so the candle was lit up during the whole the whole time the the note was written on the wall or the word. And the candle is probably lit with the meeting of these two people that took place. And then, you know, obviously something went sour and one guy got killed. So the candle has definitely been used for the lighting. So it must have happened at night. That's another clue right there. It had to happen at night because they couldn't see nothing. Our clues are mounting up, people. The clues are mounting up. I'm going to stop and go over all the clues again when we get to a good stopping point. Okay, so let me just go back a little bit. It was lighted at the time. And if it was lighted, this corner would be the brightest instead of the darkest portion of the wall. So they, the candle was lit. And the, where they could see the note. The guy had to see, obviously, what he was writing on. So he had to have some light. And what does this mean now that we have found it? Asked Garrickson in a decrepitory voice. In other words, in a, uh, well, I got no idea what that could mean. He's just completely baffled mean why it means that the writer was going to put the female name Rachel but was disturbed before he he or she had time to finish you mark my words when this case comes to be cleared up you'll find that a woman named Rachel has something to do with it it's all very well for you to laugh Mr. Sherlock Holmes you may be very smart and clever, but the old hound is the best when all said and done so Garrison is saying uh the word there, his name was Rachel that was written on the wall. And Sherlock Holmes going, ah, you got no idea what you're talking about. None. And uh, so the, Sherlock Holmes starts to laugh, you know, like saying, yeah, whatever. And then, uh, I really beg your pardon, said my Mannion, who had ruffled a little man's temper by bursting into an explosion of laughter. So he kind of, kind, I know, you know what he did. He hurt the rat face's feelings, Poor the straight. His feelings got hurt because he was—he was sure he was onto something by thinking that the the wedding ring belonged to a woman named Rachel and she was the killer. And uh, Sherlock Holmes, basically saying, "You got no idea what you're talking about." Let's just go back again here. I really beg your pardon," said my companion, who had ruffled the little man's temper by bursting into an explosion of laughter. You certainly have the credit of being the first of us to find this out. And as you say, it bears every mark of having been written by the other participant in last night's mystery. I have not had time to examine this room yet, but with your permission, with your permission, I shall do it now. As he spoke he whipped out a tape measure with a large round magnifying glass from his pocket. Oh I can just visualize all this. With these two implements he trotted noisily about the room, sometimes stopping, stopping, occasionally kneeling, and once lying flat upon his face on his face. So he's laying right on the floor. So engrossed was he with his occupation that he appeared to have forgotten our presence. For he chattered away into to himself under his breath the whole time, keeping up a running fire of exclamations, groans, whistles, and little cries of suggestive encouragement and of hope. I can just picture all this going on. He's just going over, going, hmm, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, look at that over there, hmm, interesting, oh yeah, oh, check this out, hmm. You know how you do that when you're looking for something, and we all do it. When we're by ourselves, we all talk to us like, like for example, I'm trying to find something here around the house for the last couple of weeks, and I'm always going, oh, where, where is that dark thing? Where did I put that thing? Oh, look over here, look over here. So this is what Sherlock's doing. He's just completely, completely in his own world, which is a trademark of Sherlock Holmes for sure. As I watch him, I resistibly remind of the pure-blooded, well-trained fox sound as it dashes backward and forward through the covert covert, Whining in eagerness until it comes across the last scent. That's a good comparison right there to a bloodhound dog Because that's exactly what they do. So yeah, that's actually a good analogy right there. I like that So picture a bloodhound searching in that room and this is what you got with Sherlock very interesting For 20 minutes or more he continued his researches measuring with the most exact care and distance between the marks which are entirely visible to me and on occasionally applying his tape to the walls with an equally incomprehensible manner. In one place he gathered very carefully a little pile of grey dust from the floor, packed it away in an envelope. Hmm. Oh, remember what he said last uh, couple chapters? But he went to the uh, drop of water in the sea? Or the ocean? You can tell with, by a drop of water, a man could tell where in the world it came from. Despite one drop of water. So he's getting a dust sample. Very interesting. Finally, he examined with his glass the word upon the wall, going every letter of the most ex- minute exactness. This done, he appeared to be satisfied. He placed the tape in his glass in his pocket. They say that genius is infinite capacity for taking pains, he remarked with a smile. It is very bad definition, but it does apply to detective work. And let's face it, Sherlock Holmes is definitely a genius. Gregson and the straight had watched the maneuvers of their amateur companion with considerable curiosity and some contempt. They had evidently failed to appreciate the fact, which I had begun to realize, that Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes' smallest actions were all directed towards some definite practical end. So everything he is doing, he's taking all this information in, and surmising with uh, how things might have played out here in that, that evening, that dreadful evening where this fellow got killed. What do you think of it, sir? They both asked. So they're asking Sherlock for his opinion. It would be robbing you of the credit of the case if I were to presume to help you, remarked my friend. You are doing so well now that it would be a pity for me, anyone, to interfere. There was a roll of sarcasm in his voice as he spoke. If you will let me know how your investigation is going, continued, I shall be happy to give you any help I can. In the meantime, I should like to speak to the constable who found the body. Can you give me his name and address? Lestrade glanced at his notebook. John Rance, he said. He's off duty now. You will find him at 46 Audley Court, Kennington Park Gate. Holmes took the note of the address. Come along, Dr. he said. We shall go and look him up. So Sherlock and Watson are leaving the scene of the crime. And Sherlock has all the information he needs from the scene. I'll tell you one thing which may help you in the case, he continued, turning to turning to the two detectives. There has been a murder done. And the murderer was a man. He was more than six feet high, was prime of life, had small feet for his height, wore coarse square toe boots, and smoked a trick and polly cigar. He came here with his victim in a four-wheeled cab, which is drawn by a horse with three old shoes, one new one on his foreleg. In all probability, the murderer had a florid face and fingernails on his right hand remarkably long. These are only a few indications, but they may assist you. (laughs) Now, can you imagine these two detectives looking at Sherlock going, What? (laughs) How did you surmise all this? Lestrade and Granson glanced at each other with an incredulous incredulous smile. If this man was murdered, how was it done? asked the former. Poison, said Sherlock Holmes curtly and strode off. One thing, Lestrade, he added, turning around at the door. "Rash is German for revenge. So don't lose your time looking for Miss Rachel. (laughs) So there goes that little theory right out the window. With which Parthenian shot, he walked away, leaving the two rivals Ophamoth behind him. So then that's the end of chapter three. So basically, Sherlock just went ahead and said, hey, you know what? You guys are definitely on the wrong path. And the clues are mounting up. Let's see if we can go over the clues here again, and we'll call it the end of the day for the chapter. So, we determined one, that he is a middle aged man. I'm writing this down as we go. Two, we determined he is a wealthy man, going by all his jewelry and everything else he had in his pockets. Three, he's a mason and everybody knows what a mason is. If you don't know what a mason is, if you Google masonry or masonic uh, I think masonic temple and it you'll see a a, a square and geometry, it's, uh, masons are excel in math basically. Just, you know, just for a short short uh, definition of that. Four he was in a struggle and he fought for his life so that's the and also too number 5 he was a ship owner and he's from cleveland so and his friend the stranger both of the both of them are americans what was the guy's last name again? I remember him. let take a quick look here. Uh, hmm. Stangerson. 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 So we do have a name. The other guy's name was John Stangerson. It was a, apparently his partner in crime, I guess. We'll have to keep an eye on that detail there. It doesn't make quite make much sense yet. And uh, little clues on the murderer. Sherlock determined he was six feet feet tall, prime of his life, small feet. And he determined that they came into the, uh, I'm assuming both men probably came in the same carriage or same cab. So they arrived in a cab and the horse had three bad shoes and one good one. Which they'll probably look for later on. And in the end, he told uh, Lestrade, the little rat-faced fella, that uh, you're not looking for a girl named Rachel, so forget that. The term, the term "Rash" is German for revenge, so don't lose your time wasting. Don't waste your time on trying to find out that or pursuing that line of line of thought. So that's the end of chapter three. We have uh, lots of information here. They found the murder. Our first victim in the stories of Sherlock Holmes, and it's very interesting. And I think we're going to be uh, quite quite amazed at how this whole thing plays out. Sherlock and Watson are off to go and see the detective who found the body, and his name was John Rance. And that's where the chapter chapter four is going to start with John Rance had to say. So we're going to leave it right there. We're now waiting to find out. We know all the other clues now. Sherlock was running around outside the house. Found a lot of clues outside. Took some dust samples. He noticed there was a smoking cigar and a you know, on the wall. So everything is all coming together. And they, they examined the body. That's gone. So now Sherlock is on to find this detective who found the body, John Rance. And we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, everyone. I hope you have a great week. And we'll continue on with chapter four next Sunday morning. Have a great week. Bye for now.